On August 22nd of 2020, Dr. Michael Sala presented his groundbreaking findings of the deep state plans to hide the truth about secret space programs and extraterrestrial life. In this four-hour webinar, Dr. Sala exposes hard evidence found in declassified and leaked government documents, historical records, as well as vetted testimony from whistleblowers and experiencers. Exopolitics Today is pleased to make this historical event available to you in two parts. Well, this is really exciting. We are at a unique time in history. Things that people have been waiting for for decades are about to happen. I myself, my life was transformed about 20 years ago when I first learned about this cover-up of UFOs, advanced technologies, extraterrestrial life. And I believed at the time that this would go mainstream very soon. That was back in 2001 in May. It didn't happen. 9-11 happened. And ever since, we've had barely a whisper about UFOs, extraterrestrial life in the media. Now, things are about to change in a really big way. And we are all part of that. Everyone that is participating in this webinar, we are, we are going to witness something truly extraordinary. So buckle your seatbelts. We are going to go for a wild ride as we look at all the things that are happening. So let's begin with the slides that I have in this presentation for you. So we're going to be looking at the topic for today is how the deep state hides the truth about secret space programs and extraterrestrial life. What is being hidden? And who is lying about what? Those are some of the things we're going to be covering. And I'm going to begin from a really critical time in our history, which was the Second World War era, because a lot of what has transpired since owes its origins to the people and the thinking that established the system that we are experiencing at the moment. So what we have during the Second World War was the use of psychological operations, deception, as a means of being able to deceive the enemy, to manipulate public opinion, to be able to achieve your desired outcome in the war. And no one really put it better than the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom, Winston Churchill, when he said, in wartime, truth is so precious that she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies. So that really summarizes the official position during a time of war, where authorities regard the truth as something that 
is going to be decisive. Whether you win the war or lose the war is, is how well you are able to hide the truth. And of course, we know that probably one of the biggest uh, campaigns, the, uh, the Normandy landings, was part of this deception strategy. So Churchill really laid the foundations for that. And all of the major powers, all major countries understood this. They knew that you, you had to hide things. It wasn't really from the general public. And this is one of the things we really need to emphasize here because those of us involved in the UFO field think, well, the deception is all about us, all about me. You know, it's kind of like, I'm, you know, it's like this is the way a lot of people think. It's about me, it's about deceiving us. But really, we are just a side effect. Really, it's about how do you deceive your opponents in a wartime situation? And during the Second World War, it was followed very quickly by the Cold War. And while these three gentlemen, the leaders of uh, the United Kingdom, of the United States and the Soviet Union were all wartime allies, soon after the end of World War II, uh, World War II a new Cold War, a Cold War happened. And this was where all three sides we're using deception against one another, trying to make the other think in a certain way. And, and this is very important when we consider the UFO issue, because it wasn't just a matter of hiding the truth about UFOs from us, the general public. It was making sure that your adversaries, your major adversaries, didn't know what you knew that you were hiding from them the truth. And there was also another Cold War beginning, and that was way down south, um, go further south than Australia, where I'm from. You gotta go all the way down to Antarctica, and this is where you have the breakaway group of Germans that established a colony down there during the Second World War, and the Allied powers knew this. They were aware of what the Germans had done and they knew that the Germans had advanced technologies. So this was also another aspect of this campaign of hiding the truth through a bodyguard of lies, of like making it seem as though the World War II had come to an end, Nazi Germany had been defeated and that's the end of the story. Well it wasn't. Because what was happening in Antarctica was a continuation of something that emerged during the Second World War. So let me move over now to the next slide. And this is something that was happening. All the major powers were in this race to acquire advanced aerospace technologies. All the major nations, the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, France, Canada, Australia, they knew or quickly learned that Nazi Germany had achieved remarkable breakthroughs in reverse engineering and building flying saucer craft. 
there were as many as 30 different flying saucer prototypes that were being developed by Nazi Germany during the Second World War. Now, the successful prototypes that were built by major German corporations, those were the ones that were transported down to Antarctica as the backbone for an Antarctic space program that would be headed by the Germans. The unsuccessful prototypes that were built by companies that didn't win the contracts because the prototypes were deficient, those were the ones that the Americans, the British and the Soviets found. And they are the ones that we subsequently learned from in, in various major news reports after the Second World War. So those flying saucer prototypes were very real and the Allies knew that this technology was something that the Germans had made great progress in and that it involved extraterrestrials because many of these craft either were acquired from an extraterrestrial civilization or were crash retrievals. And of course some of the prototypes were just German reverse engineered copies of these. Now, we know that this was something that took up a lot of attention for all the major countries, especially in the United States. Uh, there's the Special Operations Manual uh, 101, and, and that was a manual for the recovery of extraterrestrial entities and technologies, that these were things that were happening around the world. And so there were covert teams set up to go to remote areas, whether it was in the United States or whether it was in the Pacific or where, whether it was in Europe, wherever the United States and its allies had some kind of influence, a presence, this is where these crash retrieval operations were conducted. So you have secret teams going all over the planet. Now this manual is something that was leaked. It's a so-called majestic document, which is a document that appears to be official and genuine, but it's never been acknowledged by government, by the United States authorities as, as genuine. But nevertheless, it's been leaked and uh, we've had forensic analysis conducted on these documents. Uh, people like Dr. Robert Wood and his son Ryan have really been uh, pioneers in authenticating these documents. And that is very important uh, because it shows that these documents, even though they haven't been officially acknowledged, have all the earmarks of official documentation at the time. So really you can take it to the bank that a lot of these documents, including this one, the SOM 101, are authentic and it describes the practices that were put in place to retrieve extraterrestrial craft and the, the teams, the covert teams that were set up. And, and this was not something that was just unique to the United States. Uh, the, the Soviet Union had their own crash retrieval te uh, teams. Uh, they had their teams, their operations operating out of a place near Stalingrad called Kapustanya, 
and they had their crash retrieval teams operating from there because the Soviet Union is a vast territory and so they were bringing crashed craft there to Kapustanya for study and reverse engineering. And the United States was doing the same. Britain working through its uh, allies, Canada and Australia, both of which have vast territories. Again, you have crashed craft uh, and these are being recovered. So let me move over here again to the other camera. So, so what are the goals of the deception programs? Well, one of the goals is hiding the truth from foreign governments and militaries. And a really good example of this is Chairman Mao of uh, China. He believed that UFOs were a Western trick, that it was like he believed that the UFO phenomenon was something that the United States and its allies were promoting to try and trick China into spending its scarce resources on these dead-end programs of reverse engineering alleged flying saucer craft or trying to reverse engineer something that was, uh, in Mao's eyes, impossible. So there you have an example of governments believing that what we consider to be reports, genuine reports of UFO sightings, UFO crashes, that this is something that governments might believe to be part of a deception program with an ulterior motive. Uh, the other layer, the other goal of a deception program is to hide the truth from elected officials and military officials who don't have need-to-know access. And need-to-know access is something in the classified world where uh, regardless of whatever security clearance you have, whether it's confidential, secret, top secret, or queue clearance, and all the country, different countries have their own, their own systems of classification like that. But you're, on top of that, you have this compartmentalization process where there might be a classified program where you need both top, se top secret security clearance as well as code word access. So, for example, MAGIC was one of the code word access to the program dealing with extraterrestrial life and technologies. So, if you have a top secret security clearance, you have Q clearance to know about nuclear secrets, and maybe you have uh, access to various programs that are in your field of specialty. If you're in the military, if you're in government service, if you don't have magic code word clearance, then you don't have need to know. And even if you have magic code word clearance, you still need to justify need to know. So gives you an idea of how the compartmentalization process works. And, and this is a very effective way of hiding the truth from people within the military and government service because those who don't have need to know, uh, one, they're not supposed to ask about it, and those who do have need to know security clearance, you, you need to go with a cover story. You need to tell a lie. I mean, that's what a cover story is. A cover story is a lie. And if you're given security clearance or code access 
to one of these compartmentalized programs dealing with UFOs and extraterrestrial life. You are obligated under law in the United States and other countries would be the same to promote a cover story and, and which is an officially sanctioned lie uh, that deflects people from whatever program that exists. And then you have the third level of a deception program, which is hiding the truth from the general public, from us. And that's something we are all very familiar with because we've heard many, many stories. We've heard, we've seen many sightings. We've seen investigations that have been very slipshod and unprofessional. And yet this has been sold to us as the truth of what's going on. Project Blue Book is probably the best example. I mean, that really was just a, a government-sanctioned deception program to hide the truth from the general public, making us think that the Air Force was really conducting a thorough investigation, whereas all they were doing was just gathering up information from the public concerning UFO sightings, siphoning sightings that had national security significance to a program that was set up for that and those sightings that didn't have any national security significance they were just channeled off into project blue book so richard hoagland he is uh, a long-time ufo researcher someone who i first came across back in, around 2001 2002 when i got interested in this phenomenon and one of the phrases he's most well known for is saying the lie is different at every level. So that's really what we're dealing with here. So how does this, how does this work? Well, thankfully, there are some documents that give us an idea of this. This is how core secrets are, are hidden. They're kept. It's, and this is a slide that came through one of the NSA documents that Edward Snowden leaked a few years back. And so this is how you, the secrets are hidden. So you, you have uh, an umbrella program, uh, a Sentry Eagle, this is the, the rubric, for the idea that you hide your most sensitive, your most highly classified secrets under less classified secrets. And this is something that this slide encapsulates. It shows us here you have um, for the NSA what you have Century Eagle involves non-exceptionally compartmented information programs so that in the NSA system uh, exceptionally compartmented information is like there uh, it's not so sensitive but underneath that you have all of these exceptionally compartmented information programs ECI programs and those are the most sensitive so this gives you an idea of, of how the secrets are kept within the government system. And this is something that was actually pioneered by the, by the Germans during the Second World War and the Allies just followed up with that and, and the Soviets did the same. It's a very logical system. And, and how does it work? Well, I'll give you an example of how it works. So you have this operating um, at Area 51. Uh, you have these different levels of secrecy uh, where you have, for example, some top secret aerospace program uh, where you have Groom Lake, you have a company like Lockheed Martin, uh, it's Skunk Works, building 
new generation spy, spy planes. I mean, we know that uh, Lockheed built the U-2 and the SR-71 at Area 51. Lockheed has also, was also working on another program called uh, uh, the Aurora Project. Um, and they built these craft, these uh, craft that were able to, to reach hypersonic speeds, uh, Mark V and above, uh, called the SR-74 and the SR-75. Uh, these were the replacements for the SR-71. So according to various sources, uh, one of the ones that, one of the sources that I think is most credible is Edgar Fouché. Uh, he did a really good expose of uh, the Aurora project at Area 51 uh, back around 1999. Uh, you can find it on the internet, Edgar Fouché. And, and he described how it worked, that, that you would have the uh, SR-75, which would be the bigger plane. It would, it would reach a speed of Mark V uh, at, I think, uh, like 100,000 feet. And then the SR-74 uh, would launch, it would piggyback on the SR-75, and it would launch up and was able to achieve escape velocity of uh, I think it's uh, what 24,000 miles per hour uh, and so that was a craft that was essentially a spacecraft but this this was using scramjets and uh, jet propulsion technologies very advanced technologies from what is currently known today so this is clearly a top secret compartmentalized program that was occurring at Area 51 at Groom Lake but this was a, a very effective cover for an even more secretive program occurring in Area 51, which was the development of these anti-gravity craft using these principles of torsion field physics, where if you rotate plasma at a very high pressure, uh, at above 60,000 revolutions per minute, you would begin to generate an anti-gravity effect and you could have uh, the mass of an object like the TR3B, uh, this triangular shaped object. Uh, according to Edgar Fouché, uh, once you had the torsion field uh, being created, it would reduce the mass of that craft by approximately 87%. So that meant that the, the craft would almost seem to defy the laws of inertia because once you reduce the mass by 87%, uh, it could accelerate much more quickly. Uh, it could do right-hand turns uh, without crashing the occupants who normally, uh, through the laws of inertia, you know, would smash into the wall, but now they could just stay in the craft if it did a right-hand turn and, seat, and a seatbelt or harness would keep them in place without them being crushed. So. You would, you would have this torsion field physics operating in this craft. Um, you would have, uh, say, conventional engines that would be able to provide the thrust. And so this was a craft that was operational in the late 1980s. And Edgar Fouché uh, identified that this was actually housed at the S4 facility at Area 51, which was at uh, Papoose Lake. So what we have here is a really very advanced aerospace vehicle, the TR-3B.
that would be using these tor advanced torsion field physics that uh, appeared that were revolutionary as opposed to the less classified but still very sensitive Aurora project using scramjets and uh, jet propulsion technologies uh, what is known to science so that's how you hide a secret because if someone for example a congressman or a general hears about these TR3Bs operating at Area 51 uh, well I'll be told that no no that's 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 just a, a government sanctioned deception program. That's not real. We're, we're just fooling the public into believing UFOs are extraterrestrials. We're, we're actually behind that. I mean, the CIA actually did say this. Uh, and, they'll, and they'll say with all sincerity that the real secret at Area 51 is this. This is what we're covering up. But that, as we know from this, from the Century Eagle program, the Aurora project was the, the cover for the more sensitive S4 programs involving uh, anti-gravity torsion field physics and the reverse engineering of extraterrestrial craft that were that were happening there. So who controls the UFO secrets? Who controls information about extraterrestrial life? Now I'm sure many of you have heard about the, the alleged group uh, Majestic 12. Uh, this is how it looked back in 1947 according to the leaked Eisenhower briefing document which for the first time revealed the existence of this secretive group that people had suspected uh, was in control but until that document leaked in uh, I think it was 1984 people didn't know who was involved in that but um, in 1984 that all changed when people began to research it and I believe it was 1987 that Timothy Good published uh, this list uh, in his uh, famous book Above Top Secret. So this is the lineup of ministers or people officials and very heavy representation you can see four very senior military officials, uh, generals, admirals. Uh, then you had another four people that were intelligence in the part of the intelligence world and then you had another four people that were uh, part of the scientific community so that's a kind of a breakdown which makes a lot a lot of sense you have your military you have your people involved in the national security covert operations side of things and then you have your scientists Th that kind of ratio would be something we would expect that Majestic 12 would continue to possess. Now I just want to mention or emphasize uh, you know, the, the third person at, at the top there, James Forrestal, who was the Secretary of the Navy and also later he, he became in 1947 the Secretary of Defense. So I'll be referring to him pretty soon uh, because this issue of who kept who was keeping the secrecy and Majestic 12 making the decisions and enforcing the secrecy system even amongst Majestic 12 members. So I'll talk about that. Well how do we know the Majestic 12 group existed? People always say well you know what's the evidence? Is there any hard evidence substantiating this? Well we know that there's a document uh, it's called the Cutler the Twining Cutler Memo and, and it and it basically says uh, it's about a change in the schedule uh, for a meeting of the Majestic 12 
special studies project. And here you have uh, a message being sent out by Robert Kapler, uh, special assistant to President Eisenhower, to other members of the Majestic 12 group, basically saying um, on July 40, uh, 1954, that the scheduled meeting for Majestic 12 would have to be rescheduled. So this was a document that was uh, discovered in the National Archives by uh, UFO researcher Stanton Friedman. And it's acknowledged by the National Archives uh, to be a genuine government document, uh, at least something that the National Archives possessed, had in its catalogue of official government documents. When the National Archives were questioned about these documents and its provenance, uh, there, there was an attempt to kind of like uh, backtrack and say, well, we don't know where this document came from. It just suddenly appeared in there. Um, and making, implying that, well, maybe there was some sort of uh, funny business going on. But no, it is a National uh, Archive document. Uh, that was confirmed uh, by UFO researchers who found it in the National Archives. So now what we're going to have is uh, an idea of the Majestic 12 and Deep State hierarchy. So you know, maybe we're going to tr try and expand that so you can get a little bit of an idea of, of how the Majestic 12 group uh, operates. Uh, we can see uh, there you have it. Good. Uh, you get a better idea of how Majestic 12 is located within this uh, hierarchical system. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to spend too much time on this slide, but I just wanted to point out that when you look at uh, these ruling bloodline families, ancestral, ex extraterrestrial affiliations that ruling bloodline families have, uh, that really play a big role in the formation of the deep state or the cabal and also the election of uh, US presidents. Many people have pointed out that it, it's amazing how many US presidents are elected after attending a Bilderberg meeting, uh, suggesting right there that there is a very important connection between these bloodline families and the elect elections of presidents. But that's not really what I want to emphasize here. I just want to kind of like look at in the center, you have the Majestic 12 group. And, and underneath that, you have uh, unacknowledged special access programs, uh, things like what we were talking about, what I was talking about earlier, uh, the TR3B flying triangle, that would be an unacknowledged special access program that is being run by Majestic 12. Uh, Majestic 12 wouldn't be interested in the Aurora project because the Aurora project is a cover program. So that would be run by um, a, a group such as uh, the CIA, uh, working with companies like Lockheed Martin, saying, well, we're wanting new generations of spy planes. And say customers like the Air Force and the Navy might also have a hand in that particular program. Uh, but when it comes to extraterrestrial technologies, uh, they are controlled by the Majestic 12 group, who dictates who gets access, who has need to know access, that's the Majestic 12. Uh, another important uh, aspect of, of this flowchart, you'll see at the bottom right-hand corner, false flag events. Uh, these are things that uh, Maj the Majestic 12 group and the Deep State are involved in, and they 
plan these things way ahead. And I wanted to point that out because you can see a direct line from the Deep State and the Majestic 12 group to these false flag uh, events and to unacknowledged special access programs, whereas the US president is cut out of the loop. Uh, you can see the other entities, the Department of Defense, the National Security Council, the Central Intelligence Agency, corporations, all of these have to go through Majestic 12. So it doesn't matter who you are, you can be the Secretary of the Defense, you're, you could be the US president, you say, well, I've heard there's stuff going on in this facility at Area 51, this S4 facility, I want to see it. Uh, Majestic 12 is uh, going to be the one that's going to make the final determination if you're, if you're given access or not. So, this, that's the secrecy system. Now, what happens if you have someone breaking with the secrecy system? Someone that was part of, say, the Majestic 12 group and says, no, it really needs to be revealed. This needs to be shared with the American public and with the world. Well, we had such a person in the name by the name of uh, James Forrestal, who was a member of uh, Majestic 12, one of the pioneer members, actually, as Secretary of Defense. And, and he made it quite clear in his informal meetings with a number of congressmen, including President, well, the, the future President Kennedy, who was at the time uh, a congressman from Massachusetts. James Forrestal revealed some of these secrets that extraterrestrials had been recovered, extraterrestrial craft had been recovered, that the Nazis had set away a breakaway colony in Antarctica, that agreements were being developed or that negotiations uh, were beginning with, with the Germans, that Operation High Jump had been unsuccessful. And so these were secrets that he believed should be shared with the world. Unfortunately, he was overruled by the Majestic 12 group, as I mentioned, 12 people, four military, four national security, and four scientists. Forrestal was, was on his own, so the majority, we can, and we can expect that it was an 11-1 decision that these secrets would be maintained indefinitely. So Forrestal objected and took action by giving these informal briefings to congressmen like Kennedy. And because of that, uh, the Majestic 12 group arranged for his removal from power. He was sacked by President Truman. And then shortly afterwards, it was accused that he suffered from a nervous breakdown and was placed in Bethesda Naval Hospital, and then died or, or, or committed suicide. That was the official story. But we know uh, from the research that has been conducted as people such as David Martin in his book, The Assassination of James Forrestal, that they say that this was something that uh, wasn't accidental at all. It wasn't a suicide. So it wasn't just Forrestal that suffered for trying to reveal the truth about extraterrestrial visitation and the recovered technologies. John F. Kennedy, who worked closely with Forrestal, one of the things that many people aren't aware of is that John F. Kennedy actually went to Nazi Germany in 
June and July of 1945 and actually attended the Potsdam de uh, meeting uh, between the great powers, Stalin, Truman and Churchill. And Kennedy was a guest of James Forrestal. Forrestal wanted to recruit Kennedy to be part of his personal staff. So he gave Kennedy uh, full exposure to what the Germans had built or were building in Antarctica, so in, in Nazi Germany, what had been captured, what the Navy was interested in taking back to the United States for study and reverse engineering. And this is where Kennedy would have also learned firsthand about what was happening in Antarctica. So I, I describe all of this in my book, uh, Kennedy's Last Stand, where I discuss both the Kennedy and the Forrestal assassinations and why these two men were killed because of their efforts to reveal this, uh, the UFO secrets. Uh, so here's a photo of uh, JFK at the gravesite of James Forrestal that was taken on May 30, 1963. That was important because a week later, Kennedy traveled to White Sands Missile Range and the uh, Holloman Air Force Base, there's a, a complex there, White Sands, Holloman and, and uh, another top secret facility. And Kennedy was going to meet with some of the German scientists, paperclip scientists that were working on the advanced rockets and other classified programs for the, for the United States. And this was important because Kennedy was aware of this breakaway faction of Germans operating out of Antarctica and how they were working closely with the paperclip scientists. And this was all something that had been part of a comprehensive agreement reached between the Eisenhower administration and the Germans and the extraterrestrials that the Germans were working with. So Kennedy wanted to gain access to all of this information, but he knew that Forrestal had been assassinated for, doing, for trying to disclose the truth about this. So he knew that he was treading on very dangerous territory. And so a week before he went to White Sands, uh, he visited Forrestal's grave. So you're right there, you have powerful circumstantial evidence that he was about to do something that was in honor of James Forrestal. This was the first time that he visited Forrestal's grave as President Kennedy. So it happened a week before his visit to White Sands and uh, just, just over five months before his um, assassination. So, assassination um, has been used against government officials that threaten the secrecy system. So now the question we have to ask is, what happens when secrets can't be kept any longer? This is where we need to look at contingency planning by the Deep State, by the Majestic 12 Group, for how to deal with this process. 
So this is where we get the idea of a limited hangout. Now, I'm sure many of you have heard it, but I'll read out the quote uh, that Victor Marchetti, which I believe is the one that uh, most people probably first learned about. Uh, that was in 1978. And so Marchetti said the following. <clears throat> a limited hangout is spy jargon for a favorite and frequently used gimmick of the clandestine professionals. When their veil of secrecy is shredded and they can no longer rely on a phony cover story to misinform the public, they resort to re admitting, sometimes even volunteering, some of the truth while still managing to withhold the key and damaging facts in the case. The public, however, is usually so intrigued by the new information that it never thinks to, to pursue the matter further." End quote. So that really summarizes a, a, a limited hangout because the government has decided, or Majestic 12 to be more correct, has decided that either the truth can't be kept any longer or you want to steer the public in a certain dire direction by releasing some of the truth, but not all of it. But nevertheless, that small piece of the truth that you release is going to captivate the public so much, but it's going to take them to a dead end. That's really the intention here, taking them to a dead end. So this takes us to the uh, Bob Lazar case, very famous case. Uh, Everyone has heard about it, so I, I really don't need to go into too much detail other than just uh, recapitulate that in 1988 he was recruited uh, by Edward Teller. And I, I should mention Edward Teller back here uh, when we... Oops, no, I will be talking about that later, actually. Yep, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, <clears throat> so Bob Lazar, he's recruited by Edward Teller. Uh, Edward Teller recommends him to be part of a classified program operating out of Area 51 and everyone has heard of the story of how uh, Bob Lazar gets taken on, a, on these planes by uh, belonging to a company called EG&G out of uh, Las Vegas, Nevada and gets flown to Area 51 and, and sees these nine flying saucer craft in the in this facility in this s4 facility and his job was to work on trying to understand the propulsion system of that craft and so he he described the other craft that that he saw so this is a schematic of some of the different craft that he saw i believe there was nine altogether that that he saw there uh, but the one that he was working on uh, he described how difficult it was to effectively understand the propulsion system of that because of the system that was in place at the time. He pointed out things like there was a lack of personnel in the reverse engineering flying saucer craft. So there just weren't so many people there that Lazar made the, made the point of saying that for something as phenomenal as this program that he was seeing, where you have the, these anti-gravity effects being generated, something as phenomenal as that, he, he thought there'd be hundreds, if not thousands, of scientists working on that program. 
But instead, he just found a few, I mean, a dozen, whatever it was, just very few personnel working on the reverse engineering. And so immediately, what we can get from that is that S4 really was a sideshow, kind of more of a museum than an active re reverse engineering program designed to create prototypes that you could then mass produce for your customers down the line, whether it's the Air Force, Navy, whoever. Lack of funding for the program. Uh, Lazar pointed out that this program had very little funding. That very little evidence that much money was being spent on this. And this, and this surprised him. He thought, well, he was thinking if something like this should have a lot more money in it. And, and, and he was really puzzled as to that. Well, what we do know, and I've done research on the black budget. There's a report I wrote back in 2004 called the Black Budget Report. You can find it on my ExoPolitics website. The black budget that is developed for these classified reverse engineering programs is actually vast. It's close to a trillion dollars uh, based on estimates in the late 1990s. And in, in the Black Budget Report, I give you references for where you can find that data, confirming that up to a million, sorry, up to a trillion dollars every year was being spent for these classified programs that were raised off the books by the CIA that can take appropriations from any government department and without recourse to law, then siphon all of that money into the Department of Defense, which then accepts the money and puts them into whatever classified program they want, but without there being any paper trail, without there being any way to audit this, and without Congress being aware of it. So that's how the black budget works. So the idea that the, the funding for this program was, was small, as Bob Lazar observed um, at the S4 facility, is, is ludicrous. It's actually vast. So, some, so what Bob Lazar was seeing this is making us, this is more evidence that what Bob Lazar saw, saw was not the real deal. It was just a sideshow, a distraction. Uh, overbearing security, uh, preventing scientific breakthroughs. Uh, and Bob Lazar suspected that the real work was happening outside of S4. And he was correct that at the S4 facility they had these overbearing security procedures in place where if you were working on the propulsion system, you couldn't talk with the guys that were working on the navigation system and the navigation system guys couldn't talk on the guys that were working on the communication system and the communication systems guys couldn't uh, talk with the guys w that were working on, say, the, the composite metals, the alloys that were used for that craft, which is absurd. It truly is absurd that you, you would actually separate these people from communicating with one another to reverse engineer such a craft. But that was what was happening at S4, according to Lazar. It doesn't make sense, but nevertheless, that was what he revealed. And so it was one of the justifications for why this program was ineffective. <clears throat> so now, what makes me suspect? 
Bob Lazar was part of a limited hangout. I think he was telling absolutely the truth. I don't think he was a government agent or an asset. I think he was exposed to this. Um, and they knew full well what would happen. And, and we know that Bob Lazar described an incident when he was on the verge of telling all of this, revealing it publicly through a television network, that uh, his car wheel was shot out in a warning. And that's when he decided that he would go and kind of like go public and, and, and give the, the television interview uh, for, for safety. Well, we know from what I discussed earlier that the Majestic 12 group, when it came to Kennedy, when it came to uh, Forrestal, they mean business. If anyone threatens the secrecy system, if they're not going to take the carrots, if they're not going to go silent, they're dead. Simple as that. But that didn't happen to Lazar. Lazar survived it all. And I think it was because Lazar was part of a limited hangout. And that's important to keep in mind here. So let's move over to, to the next slide. And here we're talking about another witness, another eyewitness called Connor O'Ryan. He emerged in the early 1990s. Uh, Wendell Stevens, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens was the man who personally interviewed uh, Connor O'Ryan. That was a pseudonym. I think his real name was Derek Hennessy. And this was another witness who was at S4. And, 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 and basically what Connor O'Ryan described S4 facility, he said S4, uh, the S4 facility was like a cooling down station for covert assassins who would work for Majestic 12, do whatever was needed. Some of that I've already des described crash retrieval operations and you know, part of the crash retrieval operations in that manual I mentioned earlier, the special operations manual, uh, they describe what to do with people that don't cooperate in terms of keeping secret what they saw. Well, if people don't cooperate, if they don't keep secret, these government assassins go out and, and Connor O'Ryan was one of them. They would go out and they would kill people. Uh, and Connor O'Ryan, when he was interviewed by Wendell Stevens, I think it was 92, 93, something like that, he said that uh, he had uh, gone to Eastern Europe, I think it was Czechoslovakia, and had assassinated a, an army Green Beret who was causing problems for the Majestic 12 group. And after that assassination, after that hit, he had to go to the S4 facility as to cool down. And he described uh, seeing uh, some of these flying saucers at the S4 facility. Another person who's described uh, being at the S4 facility uh, was uh, Colonel Steve Wilson, who was part of this crash retrieval program that was going on around the world. He described it as Operation Pounce. And so that would, that would be an Air Force unit that would go anywhere in the United States or around the world where there was a crash UFO incident and they would do everything that was needed uh, to sanitize the area, maintain secrecy, uh, establish a cover story and to remove that craft and take it to the United States. Uh, so uh, Colonel Wilson described himself as a, as a part of this program and he also described the flying saucers at the S4 facility, but they were basically kept in storage hangars. Now you have to think, logically here, if, if this 
was truly where the reverse engineering was, was happening? Would it, would it be happening at a place where all these flying saucers are kept in a kind of like hangars in a storage facility? Wouldn't they be in a laboratory being studied carefully by teams of scientists trying to work out the navigation, the propulsions, the, 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 the kind of metals, the alloys and the communications uh, software? Of course. So what's at S4 is a deception program. But keep in mind what I said earlier. Who is the target of the deception? Is it us? You and me? Or is it for the benefit of another government? Trying to make it look to another government as though the United States is not making much progress on this stuff. This is what we have. We, we really don't know what's going on. Because we know uh, that Chinese, Russian and other major governments have actually been given access to S4. In the 1990s, scientists from China, Russia and elsewhere were given access to S4. They were given the, the whole dog and pony show and said, well, this is what we have. This technology is just way too advanced for us. So we're inviting you here because maybe you might be able to give us some hints. So we're going to help. We're going to ask you to help us reverse engineer this. And, and this is the way we operate. Now, once the Chinese and the Russians saw what the Americans were doing to reverse engineer these craft, I say, these, these Americans are stupid. Man, they don't know how to reverse engineer anything. They've just given us all the secrets. So, so that was the way it worked. It was a deception program try, trying to trick the Russians, the Chinese, and whoever else, into thinking that American reverse engineering programs were hamstrung through lack of funding, lack of personnel, overbearing security procedures, and just sheer incompetence. That's what the United States, that's what Majestic 12 wanted the Chinese and the Russians to think. It was a deception program, and they wanted the American public to think the same. So that's important. So now that's, this raises a really important question for us. Where is the real reverse engineering happening? If S4 is just a museum, it's just a dog and pony show for a limited hangout, people like Lazar, or you want to show scientists or congressmen, military personnel, you want, you, want to, you want to show them some of what's really going on. Yeah, yeah, we really did recover craft. And, and some of these craft at the S4 facility, we've had a number of whistleblowers on insiders say that the nine, out of the nine craft that are there, five are extraterrestrial craft and four are German flying saucer craft. One of the German craft is the Vril, the very first flying saucers that were developed in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, the Germans were developing this stuff in the 20s. And by the early 1930s, they, they were already testing their first prototypes. Then, of course, Nazi Germany came into power in 1933. Hitler appropriated it all, put the SS in charge. But up until that time, it was a civilian-run program involving uh, the German Navy and uh, leading scientists. And these were the guys that eventually relocated to 
Antarctica to just to continue. So this, what was happening at Area 51 at the S-4 facility with the flying saucers, uh, that itself was a deception. So remember the dictum from Richard Hoagland, the lie is different at every, at every level. At Area 51 you have Groom Lake, they've got the Aurora project, that's a cover for the programs at S-4 that involve these uh, flying saucer craft or the TR-3B, but that is also a cover. It's a limited hangout for something else. So where's the real reverse engineering happening? Okay, I think a really good clue into all of this was uh, one of the witnesses at the Disclosure Project in uh, 2001 uh, by the name of Mark McCandlish. And what he did was that he provided some detailed blueprints that he had put together based on the testimony of a patent illustrator friend of his by the name of Brad Sorensen. And, and Sorensen's story was, was basically the following. He, was, he went to Norton Air Force Base to do an air show back in 1988. He's a patent illustrator, so he's there to, to cover the air show, see what advanced technologies are there. He was a, uh, accompanied by a very senior government official that said, you, you want to see some really cool stuff? And Sorensen said, yeah, sure. So they got into a plane, flew from Norton Air Force Base to Edwards Air Force Base, and I believe where they went to was likely the, uh, the Palmdale facility uh, of Edwards Air Force Base, where Plan 42 is located. So he went into this giant hangar, and there was a partition in the hangar, and so once he walked through that partition, uh, it was a big cloth partition. So once he walked through, this is what he saw. He saw three flying saucer craft. They were on display as a, like an air show. They were there for potential customers. And we're talking about the US Air Force, US Navy, and whatever other customers, corporate customers, would come along and say, we want some of those. We want to place our orders. Uh, which company was involved in that? I think it was area. It was, I think it was Lockheed Martin, but I'll explain my reasoning uh, shortly. So, this is one of the illustrations that Mark McCandlish came up with that shows the three flying saucer craft. And in my book, the U.S. Air Force Secret Space Program. Uh, that came out in 2019, there's a chapter in there that compares the configuration and the size of these three flying saucers that Brad Sorensen saw at Edwards Air Force Base with the specifications of Nazi German flying saucers that had been built by uh, German corporations during the Second World War. And the sizes and the configurations are so similar that 
it's very easy to understand how these flying saucers were built with the cooperation of German corporations that had earlier built the prototypes for the Germans. Companies like Dornier, uh, Siemens, these were companies, German companies, that were, uh, IG Farben was also involved, even though they were disestablished and broken up into, ma into major uh, subsidiaries after the war. Uh, nevertheless, these subsidiaries continued to work on these kinds of classified technologies. So they all collaborated to help the US develop its reverse engineering of these flying saucer craft. Uh, this is the cutaway of the uh, Sorensen called it an alien reproduction vehicle. And this was reverse engineered from one of the captured flying saucers, presumably the extraterrestrial rather than the German flying saucers. And, and McCandlish described the way in which you, you had capacitors in there uh, set up so that you could utilize the Byfield-Brown effect, which is when you have a very high electrostatic charge at one end of a capacitor, the positive side of the capacitor, if the charge is sufficiently high, that capacitor is going to experience a thrust in a certain direction. This is not a, this is not a force that is recognized in physics. So they call it the Byfield-Brown effect rather than a new force. We've got four forces that are known to physics. Um, so this would be like a fifth force, the, the anti-gravity effect. Once you have um, a, a huge electromagnetic charge generated, it creates this uh, force, a propulsion force, in a, in a particular direction. So that's what he described. Um, he also gave another schematic of the interior of that craft. So what, what, what you see here is um, a really nice illustration of how this craft could accommodate three to four people. He said that this was the smaller of the three craft, around uh, 40 feet, 40, 50 feet, whereas the larger of the three flying saucers that were being shown at Edwards was about, it was about 120 feet, 40 meters in length. So, and that, that could accommodate, uh, I think it was about 20 people. So these were the craft that were on display and they had been built, they had been uh, reverse engineered by companies uh, that were associated with the Air Force and with the Navy uh, and were showing these finished products that were basically being sold. So this was back in 1988, around the same time as Lazar was starting to, to come out with his story. So this tells us what was happening at the S-4 facility at Area 51 was a sideshow to kind of make it look like America's reverse engineering of flying saucer craft was really, you know, as I mentioned, lack of funding, lack of personnel, overbearing security, and just ineffective. Whereas the real reverse engineering was happening in places like Palmdale, California, at the, Air, at the Plant 42 facility, which is run by the US Air Force. We have major corporations like Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, all working on 
their most classified programs for the Air Force. And, and these craft, such as we see here, were being built. So that's a, that's a drawing of uh, Palmdale uh, at uh, Plan 42. It adjoins Edwards Air Force Base. And the runway there is shared with the <clears throat> Palmdale Regional Air Force, oh, uh, sorry, uh, Airport. But really, so at Plan 42, you, you have the above ground facilities. And they're going to be working on things like the Aurora project, the SR-74, the SR-75, the replacements to, for, to the SR-71, the latest, you know, things that are very secretive, that are an effective cover program for the stuff that's being built underground. Because at Plant 42, you have underground facilities, vast underground facilities that link up with Edwards, very likely link up with other places further afield like China Lake and even may link up with um, Area 51 itself. So the Plan 42 facility you, on the surface in these uh, facilities above ground, you, you have your special access programs, unacknowledged special access pro programs, the Aurora project, which is, even now is not acknowledged to be real and you know there's a lot of secrecy about it. So this is what people are misled into believing is the most secret stuff being developed there at Plant 42. But that's a cover. It's in the underground facilities where Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, EG&G and other companies are working on their flying saucer craft, on their alien reproduction vehicles, all in the underground facilities. And they're tested uh, wherever they need to be tested. So they're built, the, the R&D is occurring there at Plan 42. They're built there and then they're shipped off to wherever they're supposed to be tested. So it makes more sense that Area 51 is the testing facility for craft that are built at Plan 42. Or in the case of the uh, in the case of the flying triangles, uh, the, these craft might be deployed out of S4 and, and um, flown all over the world, like, like we've seen flying triangles sightings. Uh, so here's another drawing that it shows you the Skunk Works uh, moved to Plan 42 in 1989. Uh, so interesting that uh, that's when Skunk Works relocated, I think it was in Burbank, California, uh, to Plant 42 uh, in Palmdale. So it's working on all of these unacknowledged special access programs uh, on behalf of the Air Force. So the Air Force hires these contractors such as Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, Boeing and so forth to study and reverse engineer these craft. And the corporations are able to do it um, because they have a much more integrated approach where clearly if you're working on propulsion, you're gonna to talk to the navigation guys, you're gonna to talk to the communication guys, you're gonna talk with, them, with the, the, the metal guys, uh, special alloys, the composites that make up because all of this is interrelated. Uh, so, that's, so that kind of uh, 
scientific collaboration is happening at places like Plant 42 in the underground facilities uh, that Lockheed and the others have developed, but not at S4, because S4 is the sideshow. So how do we know this? Well, uh, what we have uh, from Ben Rich, uh, we have from him some comments that, that really point out that Lockheed has built these craft. That those craft I showed you earlier that were on display at Edwards Air Force Base, that Lockheed built them. One of the things that Ben Rich did uh, soon after his retirement, I think he retired uh, around 1983 and he was giving lectures over a 10-year period up until 1993 was when he uh, gave his last lecture and I think he died not long after that. So he would finish his lectures with a diagram uh, this photo that you have right in front of you of a flying saucer and he would say interestingly in 1983 he began when he first started showing this slide he would, he would say we are working on technology to take ET home in 1983 in 1993 he would finish the lecture saying we now have the technology to take ET home he was the director of Skunk Works right up until his retirement around 1983. And he was dropping clear hints that Lockheed was working on these anti-gravity craft. But releasing this to the world was very challenging. This was one of the quotes, one of, his, uh, one of the things he said. We already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Just think about that. It would take an act of God to get them out to benefit humanity. Why is that? A big clue is that these technologies were reverse engineered not by government facilities that would have authority to release their technologies, but by corporate institutions who regard these reverse engineered technologies as proprietary trade secrets. Why would Lockheed reveal its secrets concerning ARVs and how to build them if it knew that Airbus or the Brazil's Aerospace Corporation or Chinese aerospace companies or Russian aerospace companies are going to take those secrets and build their own. You wouldn't. So you keep it secret. This is part of the reason that Rich said that these are secrets uh, things that it would take an act of God to ever have them released into the public arena. So who 
is involved in all of this. I mentioned some of these companies already, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, uh, some of the other companies, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Strategic uh, Science Applications, Science Applications International Corporation, uh, Caltech, CIA is involved, and you see the swastika and Majestic 12 in the middle. Because this collaboration was something that was made possible from agreements that were reached in the 1950s between the Eisenhower administration with the German breakaway civilization in Antarctica. And so you had a transnational corporate entity being formed as these German corporations like uh, Siemens, Dornier, uh, Zeppelin, all of these major German corporations began working with their American peers to start to reverse engineer these craft to sell them to different customers. So it wasn't just the Air Force and the Navy that were customers. You also had the Germans in Antarctica were customers for whatever was being built. Very effective way for the Germans to monitor what was being built by the US military industrial complex to stay ahead of it. Okay, so this now takes us to this uh, famous meeting, uh, this briefing that, that happened in 1997. It's been in the news lately. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have heard it, the story. So let me just recapitulate very briefly for those that don't know. What happened was that in 1997, Stephen Greer, uh, the gentleman down at the, the, bottom, the bottom left, uh, he gained access to uh, a National Reconnaissance Office document that referred to UFOs. So he shared it with uh, the retired astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was uh, a Navy captain. And so Mitchell, using his sources, was able to pass on this NRO document to Admiral Thomas Wilson, who was, um, at the time, the Deputy Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency and also the Deputy Head of the Intelligence uh, J2 for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Um, and Greer had obtained this NRO document by this uh, Navy commander, uh, Willard, Admiral, sorry, uh, Commander Willard. So when Wilson saw this document, or was given this document, he said he'd, he'd look into it. So he looked into it and tried to find out, well, who controlled this document, or who controlled this special access program that, that he didn't know anything about. So he investigated and found out that a top corporation, top aerospace company, one of these guys, uh, most likely Lockheed Martin, but it could have been Northrop, could have been General Dynamics, but he said it was the top, the top one. And the top aerospace company in the United States, would, would I would say, would have to be Lockheed Martin, simply because uh, they were the ones, uh, the Skunk Works division at Lockworks, these were the guys that helped set up uh, Area 51, 
the S4 facility, uh, Groom Lake, Papoose Lake. It was the uh, guys over there. Kelly Johnson, uh, the person who set up Skunk Works, he actually flew with uh, the CIA director for covert operations. I think it was uh, Frank Bissell um, in 1954, where they identified uh, Groom Lake and said that would be a great place to build a top secret facility. So that's how it began. So Lockheed Martin uh, was involved in that from the very beginning. So I think when uh, uh, Admiral Wilson learned about this and was denied access by uh, three officials associated with a with the leading aerospace company involved in these reverse engineering efforts, he's referring, I think, to, to Lockheed. So uh, Admiral Wilson identified uh, an attorney, a corporate attorney that uh, denied him access. And, and later on, uh, we learned through a leaked document that there were three people that Wilson said denied him, denied him access. So this is where uh, Dr. Eric Davis enters into the picture. And he's very important uh, because he's involved in a number of disclosure initiatives that I'm going to be talking about soon. So let, let me go a little bit into his, into his background. So 1991, he, well, prior to 1991, he is uh, working for the Air Force. He enlisted in the Air Force. Now, I'm not sure what rank he achieved in the Air Force, but he uh, was an intelligence officer uh, for the Air Force. And he did a number of intelligence activities uh, for the US Air Force. Then he goes on and gets advanced degrees, uh, graduates with a PhD in astrophysics. In 1996, he begins to work at the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. So right there, he gets a PhD in astrophysics, and then five years later, he, he's working for the National Institute for Discovery Sciences. And that is exploring paranormal phenomena at the Skinkwalker Ranch in Utah. So he had already developed an expertise on these paranormal phenomena back then. So that tells you a lot about his background, both when he was performing intelligence work for the Air Force and also after he gained his PhD that he was doing scientific projects associated with paranormal phenomena. Uh, you know, measuring things like high voltage electrostatics, or what happens when you have kind of magnetic anomalies, gravitational anomalies, warping of space-time. These were his fields of specialty, which makes you suspect that he was someone that was introduced to something like S4. Given, maybe he was given the dog and pony show at S4. Who knows? Uh, he hasn't admitted it. But nevertheless, 1996, he's working at uh, National Institute for Discovery Sciences, which is funded by the Bigelow uh, Corporation, Robert Bigelow. Uh, then 2002, uh, Bigelow ends the funding, and he begins to work at another 
corporation called EarthTech International, which is an outfit that was established by uh, Dr. Hal Putoff, who is very famous as one of the people that established the scientific remote viewing out of the Stanford Research Institute in the early 1970s. Uh, also another physicist. So uh, Davis begins to work with uh, Putoff and is working on all of these out-of-the-box exotic technologies uh, with Earth, Earth tech, looking at propulsion physics, anything that might give us a, a new way of understanding how we can move beyond rocket propulsion technologies to something else. So that's what Davis was working on, <clears throat> breakthrough propulsion technologies. So at EarthTech, he writes a number of feasibility studies on traversable wormholes, warp drive, zero-point energy, antimatter propulsion. Right there you have a clue. Antimatter propulsion. That's what Bob Lazar said he discovered at, at uh, S4. Uh, antimatter propulsion, um, that was how apparently the alien spacecraft propelled themselves. And the craft that were at S4, this was what Bob Lazar says in his interviews, that they used this element 115. Uh, a special isotope of that which is stable. Now, uh, element 115 has been confirmed to exist. Um, now it's called, I believe, uh, Muscovium. It's been discovered to exist. But what was discovered was an unstable isotope which breaks down very, very quickly. According to Lazar, the element 115 that the alien craft used at Area 51 was uh, stable and that they had a lot of it. And so that's what he was trying to study, try to understand. So based on that, I think Davis was probably shown or at least knows of the feasibility of antimatter, uh, an antimatter drive. Uh, simple uh, antimatter propulsion, simply because this is what Lazard described, element 115, the, the stable version of it would produce, that as it would break down, it would break down into different uh, molecules and interact with, uh, create this antimatter, which would generate an enormous pulse of energy that would propel the craft. Now, as you can imagine, generating enormous amounts of element 115 to, to propel a flying saucer would be incredibly difficult. I mean, almost scientifically impossible, which is exactly why the reverse engineering efforts at Area 51 or S4 failed. Because they were trying to replicate an antimatter propulsion system using element 115. And where can you get element 115? Well, it, it only naturally occurs either through stars that go through a supernova or what is called a micronova effect. Now, that's where the sun's outer shell, just all of it, comes out 
and the sun goes dark. It, it does happen. Scientifically, micronovas have been confirmed to exist. So, and some people predict that in, in about 10 years' time, we are going to experience a micronova event. So that's another story. But in a micronova event, you would have enormous amount of matter being generated and going off in all directions into space. Now think about it. If you're an extraterrestrial civilization and the sun is what generates these exotic heavy metals such as element 115, that's where you would go and do your space mining. So it makes perfect sense that for an interstellar civilization that wants to accumulate large amounts of element 115, you, you go around looking for it. Now, of course, given our level of technological sophistication, we can't do that. So that level of propulsion or that kind of energy propulsion breakthrough uh, isn't going to get very far with us. It would be a dead end. So these are some of the papers uh, that uh, Eric Davis um, has written. Uh, here you have one. Uh, this is an advanced propulsion study that was uh, developed uh, for the Air Force uh, Research Laboratory, uh, Air Force Material Command, and incidentally, Air Force Material Command uh, has a division at where else? Uh, Plant 42 in um, at Edwards Air Force Base. So he he wrote a paper for them uh, on advanced propulsion study. Uh, here's a paper he wrote for, uh, I'll have to go over to this, I'll have to move over here so I can see this screen a little bit better. It's, um, here's a paper that was prepared uh, for the Defense Intelligence Agency and it's on uh, traversable wormholes, stargates and negative energy. So you know, this is the kind of expertise that um, Eric Davis had. Again, here's another paper, Warp Drive, Dark Energy, and the Manipulation of Extra Dimensions. So again, this is a guy that's really at the cutting edge of these breakthrough propulsion technologies. So now let, let's, let's get back now to our Admiral Wilson story. So Admiral Wilson, 1997, he's told about this unacknowledged, unacknowledged special access program involving reverse engineered UFOs, and he knows that a major company, probably Lockheed Martin, Skunk Works, is working on it. And he's told, he's denied access by the security director, the security, uh, by the program director, by the security manager, and the corporate attorney. He's told, no, you can't have access to it. So he goes to Wilson, so he goes to Eric Davis. In 2002, he approaches Eric Davis says, let's meet. I want to meet with you and I want to talk about something. So they, they have this uh, meeting. I think it was at the EG&G uh, car park in uh, Las Vegas. And so they meet in, uh, I think it was October 2002, and they have a discussion. And Eric Davis records the discussion or summarizes it. It's not quite clear whether the 15-page document he released or that was leaked later uh, is, a, is a verbatim transcript or a summary or a combination of the two. But nevertheless, there's a 15-page document 
that summarizes this meeting between Eric Davis and uh, Admiral Wilson. And, and, and I should point out that Admiral Wilson ended his career in 2002, in, in June of 2002, as a vice admiral, and he was at the time the, di uh, the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Very important uh, position, uh, a lot of authority, obviously. And he knew about this program, and he was determined to find as much as he could about it. He was denied access, officially, and even there was a, a committee in the Pentagon called the Special Access Programs Oversight Committee that back in 1997, Wilson appealed to and said, hey, I want to know what's going on in this program. This corporation is working on this using military funding, so I need to have access to find out what's going on. And so the Special Access Program, who which is part of the Pentagon, you would think would side with the uh, sitting vice director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, but no, they didn't. They said, no, the corporation has every right to restrict access and you're not on the, the, the so-called bigot list, which is people who have uh, need to know access. So, and, and he's threatened. He's told, look, if you pursue this, your career is going to come to an end. You'll probably lose one or two stars and that'll be the end. And so Wilson obviously took the threat seriously. Nothing happened. He was promoted, became a Vice Admiral, Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2002. He retires after having served uh, four years as, as the Director. So now he's a private citizen. He arranges this meeting with Eric Davis, who he believes has a good idea as anyone as to what is happening in these corporations. They, Davis probably has a, an idea. And so Wilson shared his frustrations, shared uh, what he knew about this uh, classified program. So the Davis transcript, uh, there's, it's 15 pages. If you want to find it, go to my website. Uh, there's an article there titled Bombshell Document Confirms Navy Admiral Was Denied Access to UFO Crash Retrieval Program. So in, the, in this 15-page document, Admiral Wilson describes his unsuccessful efforts to get access to what he knew was an off-world craft. He knew that. That's what he found out. This was something that was built not by civilization, anything that our civilization has built. That's, that's what he was told that this corporation had. So we're either talking about an extraterrestrial vehicle or a vehicle that is a temporal vehicle. In other words, it comes from the future or some other dimension. Okay, so that's probably what we're talking about here, according to Wilson. As I mentioned, he appealed to the Pentagon Special Access Program, denied again. Top Aerospace Corporation backed by the Pentagon in choosing who is gained access. So whether it was Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, General Dynamics, 
they determine who's gained who who gains access and and remember earlier on where I talked about the Majestic 12 group it's Majestic 12 that is allocating which corporations get which program you know which of the major corporations is going to work on some component say say general dynamics might be working on the materials side of things because general dynamics is really good at building submarines that are able to resist high pressures in under the ocean so general dynamics might work on something like like the like the metals um, Boeing might work on something like uh, related to uh, the communication system because Boeing has works with civilian uh, fl fleets and they have to have a really good communication system transponders and so forth so that you can know where they are at any one time and and then you have a corporation Lock Lockheed that is the that is doing the subcontracting out to other corporations so Lockheed might be the major corporation that gets the contract or it shares the contract with someone else but you would have these corporations divvying all of these different functions but at the end of the day it's the Majestic 12 group that decides oh we're going to give the contract we're going to give this particular contract to Lockheed we're going to give this contract to uh, Northrop Grumman this one we're going to give to Boeing and so forth okay so one of the other points in the Eric Davis transcript of the conversation with Admiral Wilson was that something recovered years ago in the past it was a technology that was not of this earth not made by man so this really again is pointing to that extraterrestrial element or we're talking something else time travelers extra dimensionals now the next point that Wilson that that uh, that is really important in this uh, Davis transcript is the point that reverse engineering efforts were ad agonizingly slow with little or no success so that's really important because Admiral Wilson was being told that there had been very little success in reverse engineering this stuff now was this something that applied across the board to all programs that pertained to retrieved craft or was it just something pertinent to the one that Eric Davis was involved in or that Eric Davis uh, knew information about I'm sorry not Eric Davis knew what Admiral Wilson knew because as, as an Admiral he would have access to a number of special access programs some of those would have been say cover programs like the Aurora project or some of those might be some of these other programs happening at S4 so he would have known about those but what was happening in this particular corporation 
with this particular project, he was denied access and was told that this was technology uh, that was not successfully reverse engineered. And that Eric Davis said that uh, the reverse engineering efforts stopped in 1989. Okay, so more of what is going on uh, that's another article a follow-up article that summarizes the eric transcript eric davis transcript i wrote a, a, three articles you, you might find them on the website that go over all these different uh, uh details so the majestic 12 group as i mentioned um, is involved in in all of this and Majestic 12 is an interagency organization. As I mentioned earlier, it combines the military, the national security, intelligence, and the scientific community in terms of what projects should be pursued, how these reverse engineering projects are going to be managed, and who's going to be granted access, and so forth. So this is the likely uh, Majestic 12 group in from <clears throat> 1958 to 1961. This diagram comes from my Kennedy's Last Stand book. And I introduced this here just so that you would see that the person on the top row in the middle is Dr. Edward Teller, uh, the famed uh, founder, developer of the hydrogen bomb, thermonuclear weapons. Uh, he was a big fan of big weapons. Uh, he developed the. Uh, he was behind the development of the the, the first hydrogen bomb. Uh, to give you an idea, the the first atomic bomb uh, that was used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that was around uh, fifteen kilotons. Edward Teller developed the hydrogen bomb. Uh, that was 15 megatons, so we're talking a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bombs used on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. <clears throat> and it doesn't stop there. I mean, it's really wild to think about this, but Teller wanted to develop a continent buster. He wanted to develop a continent buster, not just a hydrogen bomb that would destroy a city, a hydrogen bomb that would destroy a continent, Russia. He wanted to develop a 15 gigaton hydrogen bomb. I mean, a thousand times more powerful than the uh, hydrogen bombs that were detonated by the United States in 1952, 1954, the Ivy Mike and Castle Bravo hydrogen bomb test. Just incredible. Thankfully, he was overruled, but gives you an idea of how far this goes and some of the craziness out there. But anyway, the, the point is, this is the guy, Edward Teller, that met with uh, Bob Lazar uh, in the early 1980s when, uh, I think it was 82, 83, when Lazar was working at, uh, at um, <clears throat> Los Alamos. And he had a chance encounter with Bob Lazar. And Lazar when he was out of work and wanted to get back into 
uh, the scientific field in 1988. He wrote a bunch of letters off to people, uh, wrote a letter off to Edward Teller, not knowing that Edward Teller is a, a member of the Majestic 12 group, saying, hey, you know, I'm looking for work. Uh, can you make a recommendation? So shortly after that, EG&G approached Lazar and said, hey, we want to interview you, do a security clearance and all of that. So that's how all that began. But what that tells us is that Majestic 12, from the very beginning of the Bob Lazar story, was involved. So that should give you more suspicion that Bob Lazar's revelations were part of a limited hangout that was planned by Majestic 12. Because these guys think not five or ten years ahead, they're thinking 20, 50 years ahead, uh, the Majestic 12 group. So somewhere 1988, the Majestic 12 group looks ahead and thinks, well, we need to have something out there, a limited hangout, that's going to so absorb the UFO community that they're going to think this is the truth and they're going to run with it. And anyone who says anything different, they're going to be shouted down by the UFO community as charlatans, as conspiracy theorists, as, as tinfoil hats. So very effective. And that's what we see is happening now. The Bob Lazar story is out there. It's going mainstream. We, you know, the movies come out, a book's out. And I'll talk about congressional uh, briefings uh, pretty soon. So all of this is happening. And this is not accidental. I think this was all a plan to help prepare for this time. Because we are at a time where the controllers understand that the secrecy is not going to be able to be kept for much longer. And so you have these limited hangouts being unrolled or being rolled out, or at the very least being given uh, a lot of exposure. So now we return back to Eric Davis. So Eric Davis uh, is giving briefings to Congress and the Pentagon. Uh, back in uh, 2019, uh, Davis gives these briefings to uh, congressional staffers and to Pentagon officials saying that, hey, this is what, what I know um, has been going on. And he's giving them this story based on what he was told by Admiral Wilson that is encapsulated in this 15-page transcript that we talked about a little bit earlier. He's giving that story to Congress. And so what he's telling Congress, what he's telling the Pentagon, is that, yeah, an off-world vehicle was recovered. It's being studied closely um, in a top secret facility involving a corporation 
But the technology is so advanced using element 115, which of course can only be found in deep space, you know, after the remnants of supernovas or micronovas. So we're not going to have much of it. Anyone has any of it, it's going to be extraterrestrials. So obviously, no one's going to be able to replicate the propulsion system for a flying saucer that uses this kind of antimatter drive. So presumably that's what uh, this company has. And what Bob Lazar worked on, I think, is essentially what Congress and Pentagon officials are being briefed on. The lie is different at every level. Remember that? The lie is different at every level. Up until now, members of Congress, most members of the military were told, well, the UFO phenomenon, there's nothing real in it. Now they're being told, people like Davis, being green-lighted, to go and tell Congress and the Pentagon that, yeah, we've recovered some, that these are being studied, but reverse engineering efforts were unsuccessful. They ended in 1989 when Bob Lazar says uh, that, that he finished working at S4 and began to tell his story publicly. So presumably, it's all one and the same. What Eric Davis is saying, he learned about at this um, 2002 meeting with Admiral Thomas Wilson, that they're talking about the same project, which is called Project Galileo, that Bob Lazar says he worked at Area 51. So now you get a better idea of what's being told by being told to Congress and Pentagon officials. They're being told Project Galileo, this top secret attempt to study and reverse engineer a vehicle not from this earth is real, but it's been unsuccessful. So this is what Eric Davis has been doing. Uh, in October 2019, he, he gave briefings to staffers from the Senate Armed Services Committee and the Senate Intelligence Committee. And that's important because when it comes to the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, some really, a really major development has emerged. So let me move over here. What you have is the 2021 Intelligence Authorization Act. This was passed by the Senate Intelligence Committee headed by Marco Rubio. And it was a bipartisan so it was a 14 to 1 vote. So that tells us that this act is, is going to sail through, is going to sail through Congress. Um, this, what was incorporated into this Intelligence Act, after the briefing date, uh, after the briefings by Eric Davis, so this is the key here. Eric Davis goes along, gives his briefing to Congress, 
to the Senate Intelligence Committee says, yes, Project Galileo is real. We do have off-world craft in our possession. They've been studied by our top scientists. Unfortunately, reverse engineering failed. It failed because there was no funding. It failed because we lack personnel and failed because of stringent security procedures. All the same things that Bob Lazar says Project Galileo failed at S4. Eric Davis is telling the same thing now to Congress. So what, does, what did the Senate Intelligence Committee do? It incorporated passages into the Senate Intelligence, Authori the Intelligence Authorization Act for 2021 that mandates the following, quote, therefore, the committee directs the DNI, that's the Director of National Intelligence, who currently is a, a close ally of uh, President Trump, that's John Ratcliffe, the present DNI, in consultation with the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and the heads of such other agencies to submit a report within 180 days, six months, of the date of enactment of the Act to the Congressional Intelligence and Armed Services Committees on Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. So that's really important because this Act, this Act that's been submitted on a bipartisan basis and is now working through the uh, ratification process, this act, once it's passed, the Director of National Intelligence, Ratcliffe, along with the Secretary of Defense, are going to work with the heads of all the other agencies, all the intelligence agencies, to produce a comprehensive report on unidentified aerial phenomenon. And so this means, for the first time, in the United States at least, that people that are working in the intelligence community have a means, or people working in the classified programs, unacknowledged special access programs, have a means of getting some of this information out. And so right now, the intelligence community is trying to deal with what this means because it means that there's a hammer about to go down six months after this act is passed so this is the if you go to congress.gov it tells you where this act is um, so right now it's been passed uh, it's been introduced uh, at the committee level um, in the senate and it's uh, it's got to go to the full senate then it's got to go once the similar thing has happened in the House of Representatives, then it'll go to President Trump. And once he signs it, then it becomes law. And, and with the time Trump signs it, there's 180 days. So we, we are on the verge of a countdown beginning for the entire intelligence community. And so we are going to have information released, which is unprecedented. And it's going to be rapid. Six months, a hammer's going to come down. So this is not 
This is taking us from speculating about when is this closure going to happen to now it's happening. There's going to be some kind of disclosure happening in six months. As to how much, we don't know. We can guess. But there are clear signs based on a number of initiatives happening, happening now as to exactly what is going to be disclosed to people. You have been listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala. Please remember to like, share, and subscribe to this channel. Join or start a conversation in the comments. Take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books, webinars, and podcasts by Dr. Sala. Visit exopoliticstoday.com.